This is the We Spin Recipes podcast with Andrew Apinov. Hello, hello everyone. I'm Andrew. This is We Spin Recipes and we've got Courtney Harin as a guest on the podcast this week. I know that quite a few developers and uh, entrepreneurs listen to the show, but usually we don't talk directly to music startups that much. Today is a bit different and I can tell you that the next 40 minutes are full of new information and tips both for artists and startups. I hope that all of you will appreciate the knowledge that Courtney is sharing on this episode. There is a lot to think on and uh, I'm in fact curious to hear your thoughts on the covered topics. So please leave um, uh, some comments on SoundCloud or Twitter. As you will learn in a few minutes, Courtney Harding has a very rich background in the music industry and provides quite unique services, namely thought leadership and partnerships for tech startups. Uh, many of you may have read her post on Medium, I'm pretty sure, or listened to uh, the Upward Spiral podcast on Hypod, uh, which she co-hosts. Check out the show notes at wispin.co forward slash WSR65 for all the relevant links, including Courtney's recently released book on Amazon. It's available on Kindle and goes at a very, very attractive price. I highly recommend this book for reading. And uh, yeah, so Courtney will um, uh, share more on her background uh, right now. So here we go. Enjoy the show. Hello on the show and thanks a lot for agreeing to be here. How are you doing once again for the record this time? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Doing great too. And um, yeah, so shall we start with um, this number one question? Can you quickly introduce yourself and share a bit on your background? Sure. So my name is Courtney and I do a whole bunch of different things. My background is I was a writer and an editor at Billboard, uh, the music industry publication, for about four years. And while I was at Billboard, I was writing a lot about technology and really getting to know a lot of people in the music technology space. And I sort of, I saw a need for someone who could act as a conduit between people doing startups and people in the music industry, because there was a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding. There's historically been some animosity between startups and the music business. And, you know, I was meeting these founders who were very enthusiastic and wanted to do great things, but, you know, music publishing and music licensing are very, very complicated. And, you know, they needed someone to help them not only work through that, but also know who to talk to different labels and help them start projects and really, you know, further their cause. And then on the music side of things, I talked to a lot of people at labels who were very interested in technology and trying new things. But, you know, they were a little gun shy because, again, historically, there's been sort of distrust between the two parties. And also, it's very hard to know what startups are actually worth working with and who is just sort of a flash in the pan. So I left Billboard. I started my consultancy, which was turning five uh, next month, which is crazy. Awesome. And so I've been doing that for the last five years. I've been working with a number of different really amazing startups to help them connect with the music business. And I do their business development. I do their partnerships. In addition to that, that's one of the primary things I do. The secondary things I do are um, my own writing and thought leadership work. 
So I co-host my own podcast. It's called The Upward Spiral. It's presented by HypeBot. So if you go to HypeBot, you can play all the old episodes. And it's on a little bit of a, an informal hiatus. You, my, my co-host and I joke that we'll reunite at Coachella one of these years. But, uh, you know, we, we've been working on some other projects. So the pod, our own podcast is, is a little on hold right now. But we do have some new episodes coming out that we're sort of releasing. And we're also going to probably hopefully start taping some new ones. I write a biweekly column for QPoint, which is Medium's music blog. And I occasionally write for a few other outlets. And I put out a book in January. It's a collection of essays and conversations that I've had with really interesting people in the music technology space. So I talk to an investor. I talk to an artist. I talk to people that are thinking about the connected car. So it's really these long-form, very interesting conversations. And then essays from about the first... I'd say eight or nine months of the blog. Um, and the book is available on Amazon. You can absolutely go out and buy it. It's on Kindle and paperback and very cheap. So I do that. And I also do some thought leadership for other clients of mine. So I'm not at liberty to say who I'm working with because that kind of defeats the purpose. But I do some uh, essentially ghostwriting for certain clients. And those pieces have appeared all over the place. And uh, I really love doing that. That's a, a fun way to you know, have my own ideas be sort of stretched and collaborate with other people and write about topics that I might not be as familiar with. So some of the thought leadership I do for other people is on music and technology, and that's great. Some of it is on fitness, which is great. I'm a runner as well. It's my other thing that I spend a lot of time on is running. And uh, so I worked on that. I've worked on some like really interesting advertising technology pieces. And that's, that's been a lot of fun for me. It's a great learning experience. So you know, I am always looking for new clients. I offer, you know, anything from an hourly rate to, you know, retainer-based longer-term consulting projects. I'm happy to do an initial one-hour call for a fairly low fee. If people hear this on the podcast and want to email me, um, I'll give you a discount <laughs> because you came through this podcast. So Very hopefully cool. that's an incentive. And I also am always looking for writing clients. So if you need help with your writing, if you need blog posts written, if you need any sort of messaging help, I'm always looking for that as well. So you can, uh, I'll give you, I'll tell you guys my info at the end of the show. So that's your incentive to listen all the way through and you can always reach out to me. Sounds great. And we are linking to everything that you've mentioned in the show notes. So it's really easy to find the links to your project, your websites, your book over there. And it's really cool about the discounts. I like that. And I'm you know, I have a feeling that uh, a lot of our listeners right now have read at least one piece of yours at some time in the past or maybe recently, maybe not even realizing that. Like I've been reading, going through your book and realizing that I read so many of your essays in the past, but I somehow didn't, I've been really slow with uh, catching up with your other work and actually like following you properly and so on. So it's, you know, mainly been just one of really interesting read. Yeah, and then I now think uh, like it all starts making sense and you've got a uh, pretty unique style of writing, I'd say. I really enjoyed myself and recommend everyone checking it out. And we'll discuss some of your recent articles, probably. Great. I'll have some questions for you here. So actually, just uh, a bit of a general question, but maybe you can um, highlight uh, a topic of you that you've been really into in the past week, because I know like every week or every two weeks, you've got a new thing that you highlight. And since this show is released uh, pretty soon after the, like around two weeks after it's been recorded, 
maybe you can highlight something in the music tech space that you've been like really into very lately? Yeah. So I'm really into virtual reality right now. And that's not, that's something I've been into really since, well, I'll back up. The first time I, I experienced virtual reality and music together, it was about just over a year ago. I went to an event where it was a music event and you basically watched other people's sort of virtual experiences playing as you were waiting to sit on the stage and wear the Oculus Rift headset and have your own experience. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. At that point, I was like, VR, done. I'm into it. And then, you know, in the last, I'd say, six months or so, I've been writing a lot about virtual reality. Um, I've been speaking a lot about virtual reality. I did a panel at South by Southwest on virtual reality and music videos, which was tremendous. I'm doing a panel at an event called Further Future, which is at the end of April in Nevada. It's a really cool kind of, so it's a little bit of a Burning Man vibe, but a little bit more organized, I guess is the best way to describe it. But if you're, any of the listeners happen to be in, you know, Nevada, Southern California, in that area at the end of April, I would, I think tickets are still available. I would absolutely encourage you to check it out. It's a much bigger festival than just music. There's obviously a tremendous amount of great artists. There's some really cool like exhibitions. There's a whole wellness and meditation track. There's a whole food track. I mean, it's it's a really cool event. I'm really, really excited for it. And um, I'm also going to be doing some speaking about virtual reality and some other topics, Canadian Music Week, which is the first weekend in May. And that's also my birthday. So you can, can come spend my birthday with me and I talk about virtual reality, which is super nerdy. And um, yeah, so I think you know, virtual, I've been meeting with a lot of virtual reality companies. I have a headset. I just bought a cheap one to to be able to demo stuff. I'd love to get an Oculus. And if anyone is listening to this and wants to send me one, that would be great. You know, spend $700 on a random person. But yeah, I think VR is, is a huge opportunity for music. And I think there's a couple different places the music industry can go with it. So the sort of the most basic one is live music, right? So live concerts in VR. That's something people have done a little bit. I think they're trying to do more. I think it has a ways to go in terms of being very immersive. And the first question I get when I talk about this is always, will this replace the traditional club show or a festival or or any live event? And I don't think it will because there's still nothing like being in a room with a bunch of people watching a great band. Like that's an experience that I don't think can be duplicated. But There are also a lot of people who can't go see live music for whatever reason. So I live in New York City, shows sell out all the time here. And if you can't afford to pay hundreds of dollars on secondary market, you're not going to be able to see a show, but maybe you can spend $10 to watch it in virtual reality and get some of the experience. I have friends who live in markets that are very underserved, whether they're small towns or even if they're big cities, but they're not in... They're in more remote locations. So I have friends in South Africa and Cape Town, which is a big city, but it's very hard for a lot of artists to tour South Africa because it's such a long way to go for really only two major markets, maybe three. So a lot of artists don't go there because it's cost prohibitive, but there's a lot of music fans there. Again, that's something they would be interested in and willing to pay for. People with disabilities, you know, a lot of times venues, even if they are technically disability friendly are often really not. You know, many people who have disabilities are sort of, you know, often uncomfortable in spaces like that when they're not really, the accommodations aren't really made. A lot of women I know 
feel unsafe or uncomfortable in some environments. A lot of people who are in their 30s, 40s, etc., have children and careers and, you know, they can't be out till 11 o'clock at night at a show. Like, it's just not feasible for them. But if they could be at home watching in the virtual in virtual reality, again, it's all these audiences that are being underserved or ignored can now participate. And so it's a big monetization opportunity for artists in addition to just playing live shows. So that's the starting point with virtual reality and music. I think then you start getting to more experiential stuff. So then it's, and this is the example I always use because I really want this to happen, but like, you know, you could be Beyonce for a day in a virtual experience. You know, you could have the experience of her super nice apartment and getting up on stage in front of thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, one of the things you could do is potentially go shopping in her closet. And that's a great monetization opportunity, right? You can find a dress that you like, try it on virtually. And if you do like it, you know, three days later, a package shows up at your door with that dress. And, you know, designer makes money, Beyonce makes money, every, you get a new dress, everyone wins. And I think that there's a lot of cool monetization opportunities. And then there's a lot of cool storytelling opportunities. So, you know, I've run into this a couple times where I talk to an artist and they say, look, obviously someone like Bjork, Radiohead, Arcade Fire, people like that who have very strong sort of artistic visual sensibilities are going to make cool virtual reality stuff, right? Like we've already seen Bjork do some things. I'm sure we're going to start seeing other people. But if you're just a straight up like rock and roll band, it's a little harder, right? Initially, like I sort of talk to these bands and it's like, well, you know, what can we do that's interesting? And I say to them, I'm like, think outside the box in terms of what story it is that you're interested in telling. Maybe it's not about your music. Maybe it's minimally about your music, but about your hometown or your touring experience or things that you care about or, you know, any other story that you want to tell is interesting and could be made into a cool virtual reality experience. So I think it, it expands the bounds of storytelling and it expands the bounds of what music is and what art is. So I'm really bullish on virtual reality, as, as you could tell if you've listened to me talk for the last five minutes. Other things I think are cool, I think there's a ton of cool stuff to be done in the ticketing space. I'm really excited about a recent development at a big ticketing company. And I know that's very vague, but I can't say anything more. But I like got this email in the middle of the night last night about it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, I think a lot of ticketing companies are starting to realize that they need to advance and innovate. One thing that I'd love to see is a lottery-based system for concert tickets. I'm guessing many of you listening are probably like people with jobs and lives. And uh, sometimes you can't be in front of your computer at noon on a Tuesday. Like you just can't. You're in a meeting, you're at lunch. And that essentially means you have no chance at getting most concert tickets or most popular concert tickets. So I would love to see a system where a lottery opens up 24 hours, 48 hours, you know, however long they want it to be, but enough time where people can actually sign up. And then you just put in your credit card info, you put in your name and your email address. And then, uh, you know, at a certain time, the lottery closes and a program runs in the background and you get an email that says you got tickets or you didn't get tickets. This would cut down, I think, tremendously on scalping. It would be much fairer for everyone involved. Fans would actually get the tickets. It certainly wouldn't destroy the secondary market because, look, people, you know, plans change. People want to, you know, do something else or they, they can't make it that night. They still resell tickets. So, you know, there's still a resale market in that scenario, but it just makes it a lot fairer for everyone. I think that hopefully, like people have tried that. I think that's going to become more common in the future, I hope. 
I'm also really interested in dynamic pricing for concert tickets. That's a little trickier because it like artists don't like the look of it, even though it makes financial sense for them. Like from an economics, from like a pure economics perspective, dynamic pricing. Yeah, can you explain a little bit the concept? Yeah, so basically it's like, there's never going to be a perfect match for supply and demand, right? For concert tickets. Like there's almost never going to be a scenario where it's like, everyone who wants to go gets a ticket and they pay the exact price they want to pay. Like, that's probably impossible. But what this does with the dynamic pricing is it allows the market to set the rate. So what you see a lot of the time is even though tickets appear to be expensive, the price is artificially low because when you look on the secondary market, the prices are sometimes two, three, four times as much. So in a sort of more ideal world from like, a, again, a pure like economic perspective, the market would set the rate. So, you know, the ticket would be worth exactly what it is worth. It would not be underpriced. It wouldn't be overpriced. The problem with that is fans would see that negatively. Artists would see that negatively. You know, artists would get paid more because they would allow the initial prices to be higher. But the problem is then, you know, it's a, it's a bad PR look. So I think that's going to take more time. I do think people are now more comfortable with quote unquote surge pricing given the popularity of Lyft and Uber and all those. But I'm, I'm interested in that. Yeah, those are the two things that I'm most interested in right now. I guess that's the answer. Pretty exciting stuff. A couple of questions about the virtual reality just so our listener may get some clue as to where to start looking for more information, probably. First of all, do, do you have any, any rough data on how common it is uh, among just regular consumers to have uh, VR sets in the US, for example. So if there is an indie band listening to us right now or a producer, or just an artist and wants to try it out with a relatively small audience, do you think it makes sense to try doing something in that area at this moment? So it doesn't make sense to wait for another year of you? I mean, I don't have any data. I know that it's still a very small market right now. Like it's very nascent. I sort of, you know, the analogy I use is the iPhone, right? Where the iPhone one came out, it was this very expensive premium product. Early adopters loved it, but normal consumers didn't. And people didn't see the value because the iPhone one was essentially a really nice, expensive phone, right? There was no app store when the iPhone first launched. There were very few apps. And I remember looking at an iPhone one in 2007, 2008 and thinking, you know, this is silly. Why would I pay? Like my Motorola Razor is just fine. Why would I pay all this money? And then a few, I think it was the iPhone 3 or 3G came out or 3S, whatever. And that's when the App Store really launched big time and you started to see the value and the utility and the price dropped. And I think it was available in the US on more carriers. So, you know, it moved fairly quickly, but it hit a point where it made sense for a regular consumer to have an iPhone because it was, they saw the utility of it. So, and now everyone has a, I say iPhone, and I really mean smartphone, right? So everyone has a smartphone these days. It's uncommon to not have a smartphone. And so I think with virtual reality, we're at that stage where there's not a lot of content out there. The quality of the content varies dramatically. Headsets themselves can be very cheap. I mean, I have a cheap one. I mean, the Oculus is the high-end premium product, but I got one on Amazon for I don't know, $30. And Google Cardboard comes with your newspaper sometimes, at least it does in New York City. So, you know, I think what we're going to see is like a year or two. 
And eventually there will be enough good virtual content and the price of a good headset will come down and people will start to see the value. I think the first place it's going to break is gaming and it's already far ahead in gaming than in other verticals. So I think gaming is where people are going to start really getting into it. That's where you're going to see the mainstream pick up and then you'll go from there. So you know, people will be watching films and they'll be interacting and they'll be, you know, doing a lot of really cool things. If you're a small band, I would say like, give it a shot. There's a lot of virtual reality studios opening right now. A lot of people are into it. If you can find someone that is willing to work with you on a, you know, proof of concept, or, you know, maybe you do some sort of trade with them I wouldn't say at this point it's a smart idea to spend tons and tons of money on making a virtual experience if you're an independent band. But if you can do something relatively cheap, it's still kind of unique and interesting at this point. So yeah, that's that's sort of my advice. I would say like, give it a shot if you can afford to and if you can find someone to work with you on it. And if you think you can do something cool. Yeah, it it sounds to me like it's a good time to try it out and be this kind of early adopter. And while not everyone else is doing it, try to be man still the first act to embrace the new platform. So even if it will take a bit longer to build audience for that, it, maybe it's the right time to yeah. try it. And I, I think, yeah, so some artists will just know if it's their thing. Because, uh, yeah, if you've got an, a cool idea for that, if you tested some products created by other brands, do you have any any recommendation as to where to find uh, cool, like, a collection maybe of uh, new virtual experiences? Do you know any kind of website? There isn't one as far as I can find. I have looked a little bit. I certainly can't say I've looked, you know, everywhere. But this is something that came up recently is that there is right now no Netflix for virtual reality. So Uh virtual experiences are all sort of housed in different places. You know, I think eventually there's going to be an app store for virtual reality or a Netflix for virtual reality or a library of some sort. I haven't seen that yet. And I was, it's funny, I was talking to a virtual reality producer last week and he said the same thing. So, I mean, maybe that's a great business idea. Um, yeah, that's, I'd say. <laughs> so next, next big exit is a place where virtual experiences can live. Again, this, you know, I can't say 100% for sure. There might be something in gaming, maybe a, like a Twitch type of a site where all the virtual reality gaming experiences are available for people. I I don't know. I don't claim to be an expert in that. But uh, yeah, I don't know that there's one sort of central location. You know, I think so many VR experiences at this point are, you know, they're one-offs. They are sort of experiments or, you know, I think I've seen a lot of brands sort of say like, oh, we should do VR because it's cool. And, uh, you know, some brands build cooler things than others. <laughs> They tend to be a little bit more promotional and they tend to live on the brand's site rather than in a central location. Right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I think we, I mean, I don't know of, of such a resource myself anywhere right now. And it makes sense to do some research. And if uh, we find anything relevant, then we'll just add the link to the show notes. So yeah. uh, maybe like that, yeah, there will be an update. So to those listening to us. Just I mean, the one thing out. I will say like YouTube does, a lot of times people will put their VR content up on YouTube. So, you know, you can always look on YouTube if there's something specific that you want or just go in and search around. But again, YouTube is is much more than that. So I don't know that there's a dedicated site. Okay. 
Well, I mean, in any case, it's uh, it does sound really interesting, and I really like how you present it as as a new way of earning money for bands in the nearest future. I believe it will start happening soon, where it will actually be generating money for artists. And it's kind of a hot topic that you bring up from time to time, talking about streaming platforms and so on. But have you seen any new interesting business model in music lately, specifically for musicians, not music tech companies, I mean? So any new innovative ways to earn money? Not really. You know, I wrote a piece a few, I guess like a month ago now, called The Music Startup Meltdown, and that got a lot of attention. Fortunately, most people liked it. Unfortunately, most people agreed with it that music startups have really, the, the market is bad right now. I'd love to be proven wrong. And if you have a music startup that is really killing it, please talk to me and I'll consult for you. But I think we're at a point where we have reached sort of the end of what music startups can do. And by that, I mean, we've seen a lot of people build the same thing. None of them have broken out in any meaningful ways. I think you know, people sort of rushed into music tech because it was cool and hip and sexy and fun. And, you know, now we've seen sort of the shakeout where if you look at companies that launched, many of them have gone under or sold for less than they were, you know, than they raised or, you know, and that's like, that happens. Certainly it happens in other startup verticals. Certainly it happens in other businesses. If you live in a city, you know, take a look at any major street in the city and you're going to see a ton of different restaurants coming and going or coffee shops or clothing stores. So it's not like music is special in that sense. But I think that we've just kind of hit a point where there's not a lot of places to go anymore. We have a lot of streaming services. You know, there's going to be a lot of consolidation in that market, I think, within the next year or two. I think the ideal world for labels is two or three major streaming services maybe a handful of little niche players that they sort of let float because they are sort of genre specific or, you know, have like small dedicated audiences. But generally, I think we're going to see a lot of these other streaming players getting bought, shutting down, running out of money. And yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of shrinkage in that space because at the end of the day, like you can't offer that much that is different from service to service, right? So you know, everyone's talking about exclusives, which are terrible, and I wish people would stop doing them. You know, like Apple now has this thing with Drake and Tidal got Kanye, and it's just this dumb, dumb battle where no one wins. I mean, I guess the artist makes a bunch of money, so like, okay, Kanye wins, like, great. But like, you look at Kanye's Life of Pablo going up on Tidal, and then you look at the illegal downloads, and it just, it's through the roof, right? People aren't going to convert to a service just for one album. So I think, you know, pretty much everyone, aside from the few exclusives, like everyone has the same catalog, everyone has playlists. Certainly, I prefer some services playlists to others. But again, there's only so many like fun 80s dance mix playlists that you can make. And that's it. Like some of the radio functions, again, they all have like some radio function, some better than others. But again, it's very personal. And, you know, you don't need more than one streaming service. You just don't. The prices are still too high for the average consumer and YouTube and Pandora and ad-supported Spotify offer for free, essentially, what most people are would be paying for otherwise. So it's like, there's not really a huge incentive to pay. And, you know, there's a Nielsen stat that in the US, the average consumer spends $150 a year on music and roughly half of that is live music. When you have a streaming service that costs $120 a year, like 
the math just doesn't work, right? It just there, there's no way that math ever works out. So I think what you're going to see, I mean, my prediction is like in a couple of years, it'll be two or three major services. The price will come down eventually because they'll want that mass scale and everyone else will just sort of disappear. So, you know, I think we're at a point with music tech where, again, there's just not that much new stuff to do. I'd love to be proven wrong. But I think if you're just talking about purely building a music app, you know, I haven't seen that much that has blown me away recently. I think there's some really cool, exciting stuff that people are now just starting to think about in VR. I definitely think there are some interesting functions that you can add inside the streaming services. I think putting video in the streaming services is going to be interesting. I've spoken to a startup that's working on allowing users to create their own radio shows inside streaming services. So basically everyone can be a DJ. Like that's a crazy cool idea and I love it. But I still think even with those cool things left to do, streaming services are sort of like, they've sort of hit towards the end of where they can go. And then they're just going to keep essentially doing the same thing and more and more people will eventually convert and then other new formats and new devices will come out. And, you know, 30 years from now, streaming will be like a CD or an eight track. Like it's just yeah. a format that has a lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh, it's, it's really interesting. I, I like that article. Unfortunately, I, <laughs> I agree as well uh, overall. And I've mainly been following this area of, uh, of like music tech startups, startups serving musicians and artists more than listeners, as in case with streaming uh, services that who are obviously supposed to serve musicians as well. And uh, it's been really tough in that area, just as you highlighted, obviously, you were, from what I understand, you were talking about different kind of music tech companies. And it seems to be a really difficult space to be trying to sell something to a musician, to an indie artist who's oftentimes broke. And even like I've seen a lot of amazing startups delivering great services to musicians for affordable prices, but it's been tough um, for many of them. Most of them, I would say, because it's just this space where musicians are not necessarily willing to pay for services. Do you have any input or thoughts on on that? How? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one mistake that... So there's something called confirmation bias, right? Where... If you think something and you surround yourself with people who think the same thing, you will think that is true. So we see that obviously in politics and in sort of the fact that people sort of self-segregate. But in music, we see that because people who love music tend to be friends with people who also love music. So you get this false sense that everyone loves music as much as you do and everyone cares about it and is willing to spend money on it just like you are. The fact is that's just not true. Like there is a mismatch between the amount of people who like really want to discover indie music, which is actually very, very small, and the overall audience. So I think that's the first place a lot of these startups trip up is they don't do like they don't do market research, right? Like they don't figure out if there's a market. They just build a product because like they think it's cool and their friends will think it's cool. They don't realize that the market actually like doesn't really exist. And I think the other thing is people have very much overestimated the artist market. So there's a lot of people in bands, but not many of those people want to do it for a living. They do it because it's fun. It's a creative outlet. It's a social. I spent a lot of time when I was younger in the music scene in Portland, Oregon, which is where I'm originally from. You know, most of my friends there who were in bands 10 years ago have moved on. Like, They played in bands for a few years in their 20s. 
It was super fun. They got to tour. They got to hang out with their friends. They got to do something that was creatively fulfilling. But none of them ever thought that they would make an actual living out of it, nor did they particularly want to. It was just like a great thing that they did. So, you know, I think that the average person playing music is that person. It's not someone who wants to be famous or spend money on that. So, you know, think of it with any other creative pursuit, right? So painting, there's like a 1% of painters who are career painters. They are, you know, famous painters. They are in museums. They are well-known. They're making lots of money. And then there's probably another, you know, 5% maybe who are working artists. So they're not rich. They're not in the MoMA or the, you know, the Louvre, but they are, they are paying their bills with their art. But then there's like 95% who are just people that like painting. It is something they enjoy. It is something that gives them pleasure. It's a way to unwind after work. It's a way to, you know, maybe they do art with their friends. Maybe they have little, you know, they might even like sell their paintings at a coffee shop or teach some local classes, but they're not working artists. And that's, I think, the same, and that's with writing, it's with any sort of creative pursuit because the barrier to entry is fairly low, the vast majority of people doing it aren't doing it as a career. They're doing it as a hobby and something they enjoy and find fulfilling, but they don't have an eye to professionalism, right? They have an eye to like, yeah, you know, I'm going to play with my friends and maybe we'll play some local shows. Maybe we'll do a little tour, put out a little record, but it's not something that they ever see as a career. So I think that's where the market went really wrong with all, and trust me, I mean, I've talked to millions of these services, like there's so many of them, And they fail to understand that like most people in bands don't like, certainly they're not going to spend that much money or time or energy doing any of this. So I think the thing with a lot of these music startups that have gone under is that a lot of them just, they misread the market. And I just, just my two cents to that, like I agree a hundred percent, but at the same time, maybe it's just about how a product is sold. So uh, just the understanding of the market is wrong, but if you present uh, what you do in the in the right way for this kind of audience, which makes the 95% of the market, then uh, you may have higher chances of succeeding. Many startups that I've seen, they indeed position themselves as tools for professional musicians, while what they do may serve some, you know, just bands who do it for fun, who just may need some tools to what they do quicker. So... It's really like a huge misunderstanding of the market. Any solution to that or any prediction as to where this scene is going in the nearest future? I mean, there's not only a solution to building products that are bad or not bad fits for the market. I mean, the solution to that is like build different products, build better products or build different products. Like there's the the sort of famous line is, you know, when Henry Ford introduced the car, it's like, sure, the solution was could have been like breed faster horses, but that's not really the solution. The solution is like build cars. So, you know, we're at a point where it's not build a better indie rock app because that's just an app that no one really needs or wants. So, you know, yeah, do build something better. <laughs> and uh, I know that's not super helpful advice. And believe me, I've had, I've given this criticism and I've been called like every name in the book. I've been called like bitter and angry and mean. And I'm like, well, how's your startup doing, dude? You know, whatever. It is what it is. People want to believe that what they're doing is right. And I mean, yeah, I mean, look, if, if you really like, if you really hate what I'm saying, like go out and prove me wrong and build something super dope and make a ton of money and come back and like laugh at me. And I'm great. Good for you. I think that 
The solution is to look to other spaces because I think what's hap- what happens is a lot of people build music products that have really good applications in other spaces, but they don't want to grow in those spaces. So I've seen a lot of fan management tools, some of which are very good, but... All in all have been shut down <laughs> so well, far. Do you know any that is still up? Yeah, no, like Backstage is great. It's Backstage, BKSTG. true, true. Yeah, 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 I know that one. I they, forgot about they it. I've seen like money. four or five uh, being like closed. Um, yeah, yes. Backstage is, you know, Backstage raised a... True, true. No, no, no. You're, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're great. I've seen a couple smaller ones that are just sort of plugging along. But I think the issue with those is as, as good as they are, like Backstage in particular is, is quite good. The focus is too narrow. So think of all the people in this day and age who have fans. There are YouTube celebrities, Vine celebrities, Instagram celebrities, writers. Fit, like I just happen to know a bunch of people that are fitness and nutrition coaches because that's another area that I'm particularly interested in. Those people don't get hit up that much. Like I talk to labels every day and the labels I talk to are like, yeah, we get startups coming in here all the time. I talk to people I know who are like fitness coaches or nutrition coaches or writers who all have fan communities and are looking to monetize those fan communities and often are doing pretty well. And no one is reaching out to them. No one's talking to them because I guess that's not as sexy as like, oh, I might get to like hang out with somebody famous. So I think really what a lot of music startups could do is not pivot entirely away from music because there certainly is value there, but pivot towards other things. So be broader than just like a music app. You know, if you are doing something that is of interest to many verticals, like grow there, grow in other verticals and music will eventually come around, right? You look at Twitter, for example, which is again, big in music at this point, every, pretty much every artist is on there. Twitter didn't start really going after musicians. They started going after journalists and celebrities. And I think the first, what was it like CNN versus Ashton Kutcher or something? The first to get to a million, which is crazy to think about now. Like there's all these other people that you can go after and music will eventually follow. So the one piece of advice I would give if, if you're building a music app, I would think long and hard about the other applications that it has outside music. You know, and again, you don't have to give up on music. I mean, I make my living on music tech and I love it and I think about it all day long. But, you know, I, it can only benefit your business if you grow beyond a certain vertical. Yeah, great advice here. And it's interesting how we moved from discussing things for musicians to discussing some more like startups related topics. I totally like it. And I'm sure that quite a lot of uh, music startups uh, listen to us right now. No, I mean, it's great stuff in here. And at this point, I may suggest uh, our listener going to Medium or Amazon to grab your book to read more because you have so many great articles and it's like reading something from you from two years <laughs> ago makes so much sense now. So I highly recommend anyone listening to us to do that. Do you want to share something specifically with uh, an artist listening to us right now before we wrap it up? Yeah. Oh, artists. Okay. Many things. First of all, learn how to use Twitter properly. Don't tweet everything that anyone says about you that's nice. Especially don't do that 10 times in a row. And especially don't do that if that's all you tweet. So there are artists that I really like, but I have unfollowed them on Twitter because they will go silent for weeks. And then they'll tweet 20 things right in a row that are basically retweets of something 
with that person saying like, oh my God, I love your album. Like no one wants to read that. You're great. That's awesome. The thing with Twitter is you should always be providing something of value. And that doesn't necessarily mean like monetization, right? So yeah, share your album, share your tour dates. That's great. That's the baseline. You should be providing something interesting to people to read. So the artists that I follow on Twitter tend to be people that are funny. They post goofy things or they post good articles. Like curate your your socials to build up your entire personality, not just promote your music career or not just promote whatever it is you're selling. So I'll shout out to this artist, Shura, S-H-U-R-A, who's a British musician who like, I like her music. I think she's cool. But her Twitter is just fun. Like she's tweeting about her tour and the food that she's eating and the clothes that she's like, she just seems like a very fun person. And that sort of carries through on all of her socials. So I think spending time learning how to do your socials correctly is very important. And learning how to engage with people on your socials correctly is very important. The second thing I would say is, you know, always be on the lookout for other monetization opportunities. So you can complain and moan and cry about Spotify all you like. And certainly there are people that like at this point make a living doing it. But it like it is what it is, right? Unless you have a time machine to go back to the late 90s, it kind of is what it is. So absolutely, you know, you should try to negotiate better deals with Spotify. You should try to make sure your revenue is collected and dispensed to you in the most accurate way possible. Like make sure your metadata is correct, like all that, do it. But like, it's never going to be like it was. But the flip side is think about all the opportunities you have now to make money. Think of every brand that you like. It doesn't have to be a big brand. It can be your local coffee shop, the clothing store that you, you know, like, the, the designer who you wear all the time, the makeup that you wear. Like, take an inventory of your life and all the brands that you interact with and go through and start talking to them. Now, obviously, if you use like Colgate toothpaste, that's a giant company. They don't care. But if there's a cool independent designer or a cool independent coffee shop or restaurant that you eat at all the time or local beer that you drink, talk to them and see what you can do and see if they'll, you know, they'll sponsor you or they will give you some sort of a a rev share deal, you know, set up an Amazon affiliate account and work that. You know, people are interested in experiences and intimacy, right? Like I say people, I mean millennial customers. They are, you know, they want cool, authentic stuff and they want to know your story and they want to know your brand. So, you know, there are plenty of people who are like, oh, I like that artist. I'll drink that beer because that's pretty cool. And it has to feel very relevant and it can't feel forced. But if it's something you genuinely like, there is absolutely no harm in at least reaching out to the company and saying like, hey, I'm an artist. Here's my following. I love your stuff can we have a call, right? The worst thing they'll do is just not reply. I mean, maybe they'll send you like some free stuff, which, hey, great. And that to me is the biggest opportunity that a lot of artists are missing. I will say some startups could be doing, and that's sort of cough, cough, Instagram, could be doing a lot better with helping artists monetize. Like Instagram should enable in photo commerce. And I guarantee you that would be a game changer. But, you know, I think artists just need to be you know, as forward thinking as possible and as open-minded as possible and really work on building their stories and their personalities. I mean, obviously make great music, but that's kind of the baseline. So you need to think a lot more about your overall persona in addition to your songs. Excellent. Brilliant advice. I I fully agree with everything that you mentioned. And uh, 
looking into some other spaces for for inspiration and trying to partner with someone reachable because i mean so many artists just try to reach the bigger the big brands and don't realize how even like how corporate these company size almost like impossible to reach the right person oftentimes and most probably the artist is not ready for this kind of deal anyway and yeah i mean it's it's all just great yeah so you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that you would mention how to reach out to you to get a discount yeah so there are multiple ways you can find me on uh, the internet my website is Courtney, C-O-R-T-N-E-Y dash harding.com. So it's just my name. And my name is spelled without a U. So just keep that in mind. So that's my website is my first name dash last name dot com. My email address is on that site. Or you can just email direct at Courtney Harding at gmail.com. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. I'm on Twitter at Courtney Harding. I'm on Instagram at Courtney Harding. Where else am I? I'm not on Snapchat, although I, I probably should be because it seems like fun. Medium, uh, you can find me on QPoint. If you just sort of search, if you, ser- if you go on Medium and search for QPoint and search for my name, uh, or if you follow me on Twitter, I'm always sharing the links. I have a newsletter that you can subscribe to. That's also in my Twitter. And what else do I do? Uh, let me just, uh, the podcast, if you go on hypebot.com, and search for Upward Spiral or Music Biz Podcast. There's two names, but it's the same podcast. You can find that there. And yeah, I think that's every... I'm not going to give you my mailing address. So I think that's pretty much every way you can yeah, get I mean, with me. <laughs> and once again, the links, are, except for your email address, are in the show notes. The show is great, by the way. I've been listening to the, to the podcast and I was really curious why there hasn't been new episodes in a while, but you answered this question. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's, I'm sure you know, and I'm sure other people who are yeah. listening to this podcast know, it's, it's hard to, uh, it sometimes can be hard to keep up with the volume, especially when you have a lot of other things going on. It is my goal to eventually kind of relaunch the podcast and maybe relaunch it slightly differently or relaunch it running on a more regular basis. It's on my list of things to do. My co-host and I are just super busy with other stuff right now, but we we, pro- we, we like talk to each other all the time. We're like, we got to get back to it. We got to get back to it. So we will get back to it eventually. Yeah. Soon, I promise. <laughs> We're putting out a podcast takes a lot of time, a lot more. Many people probably realize. Yes. So I, I know what you're talking about really well here, but really looking forward to that. I could be asking you questions on and on, and uh, I, I really enjoy listening to your insights. It's just that I feel like for the sake of getting a bit more listens on this uh, very podcast, we should wrap it up now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, there is a lot to read from you. So yeah, our listeners left with lots of material to examine. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. And I'm looking forward to seeing all the updates from you on your social and medium, of course. And yeah, so fancy. All right. Thank you so much. Huge, huge thanks to Courtney, and thank you, the listener, for staying with us till the end. Please spend a second to leave your thoughts on any of the themes of these episodes. Uh, I would really like to hear from you. You can do so on SoundCloud or on Twitter. You heard uh, Courtney's handle. Uh, you probably know mine. It's Meta Andrew. Uh, you can also find it all in the show notes at wispin.co forward slash wsr65 if you also have a spare minute you can uh, 
leave uh, feedback to these very episodes on iTunes and uh, rate the show there, which would be hugely appreciated. If you also want to get a cool uh, postcard uh, sent to you for free, uh, you can learn how to uh, how to claim that one at getacut.wispin.co. Thank you once again, and till the next Wispin Recipes episode. You have been listening to the We Spin Recipes podcast. Learn how we can help you improve your music career at wespin12.com. We Spin12.